Uh, tonight I'm going to read the chapter, and then we'll go back and we'll pull our uh, um, exposition and our application um, more in, in sort of a topical form. It just helps me to, to organize it and, and hopefully communicate with a little bit more clarity. So we'll begin in verse 1. It says that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bore unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and laid with her and defiled her. Contextually, uh, linguistically, he raped her. He took advantage. And his soul, it says, clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very wroth, because he had wrought folly, or worked disgrace in Israel and lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you, give her him to wife. And make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you. And you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade therein, and get you possessions therein. And Shechem said unto, uh, unto her father, that is Dinah's father, Jacob, and to her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what you shall say unto me, I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as you shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, deceitfully, and said, Because he had defiled Dinah their sister, And they said unto them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if you will be as we, that every male of you be circumcised. Then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. And the young men deferred not to do the thing because he had delight in Jacob's daughter and he was more honorable than all the house of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came unto the gate of their city and communed with the men of their city. So now comes the sales pitch saying, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade therein. For the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent unto us for to dwell with us, to be one people, (laughs) if every male among us be circumcised, as they are circumcised. But shall not their cattle... And their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. And unto Hamor and unto Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city, and every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. 
And it came to pass on the third day, when they were sore, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, should he deal with our sister as a harlot? There was an American sociologist whose name was Robert K. Merton. and He is credited as the first one to popularize the term unintended consequences. Unintended consequences defined by Robert Merton are outcomes that are not the ones foreseen and intended by a purposeful action. And developing this concept a bit more, he said that there are three possible causes of unanticipated consequences. He wrote this in 1936. He said the first is ignorance, that is making it impossible to anticipate everything, thereby leading to incomplete analysis. The second, errors in analysis, or the problem of following habits that worked in the past but may not apply in a current situation. And then thirdly, he said, when the immediate interests override long-term interests. In other words, not seeing far enough out into the future how actions will affect consequences. Now, we experience this every day, unintended consequences. They can happen in the large scale or they can happen in the micro things within our lives. I read in preparation about a province in the country of Australia, which in 1990 made it a legal requirement for all youth to wear bicycle helmets when they rode their bikes. And they did this, uh, obviously, to promote safety, to avoid injury. But there was an unintended consequence in that while there was a reduction in the number of head injuries, there was also the unintended reduction in the number of juvenile cyclists because the youths considered wearing a bike helmet unfashionable. And thus the decrease in exercise caused by the reduced cycling turned out to be counterproductive in terms of net health. In other words, people were, became obese and unhealthy because they weren't riding their bikes because they didn't want to wear the helmets. It backfired on them. There was another thing that happened in 2003 when Barbara Streisand unsuccessfully sued Kenneth Adelman and Pictopia.com for posting a photograph of her home online. Before the lawsuit was filed, only six people had downloaded the file, and two of them were Streisand's lawyers. Well, the lawsuit drew attention to the image, resulting in 420,000 people visiting the site, and thus the Streisand effect was named after this incident. Unintended consequences. And these things happen all the time. 
Well, in our text tonight, we find Jacob, and we find that he has decided in and of himself to place himself outside of the will of God geographically. He has fled from his brother, and God preserved him. He spent 20 years with Laban, where he was blessed and enriched, and his family was multiplied. He is now separated from Laban, and without incident, he's been protected. He then met his brother Esau, approaching with 400 of his men. Their meeting was peaceable, and now Jacob has overcome the hurdle of past offenses and possible endangerment at the hand of his brother Esau. And God has commanded him to go back into the land. For reasons that are not specified, Jacob delayed to cross over the Jordan and actually go into the land that God had called him into. He built a house for a season in a town called Sukkoth, and he spent probably a number of years there while his boys grew through their teens and into their 20s, and while Dinah, the only daughter that he had, came to maturity, to that age of, of understanding and of accountability. From there, he picks up and he does cross into the land, but he crosses barely into the land where he can still see the river into this area known as the city of Shechem. And what we understand from the text is that he's come to a godless place that is not fully where God asked him to go. God wants Jacob in Bethel, in the place where he had initially met with God. And although Bethel is only 15 miles or so south of where he is, in those days, according to the standard of transportation, he is far off from where God wants him. And thus we see that Jacob has chosen to place himself outside of the will of God. He's not where God wants him to be. And again, though we don't know why, Certainly, he's rationalizing it and justifying it in some way, but what he doesn't see are the unintended consequences of having an area of his life be outside of what God wants for his life. So though it's geographically justifiable, meaning I'm in the land, God, you told me to come into the land, he's not where in the land God wants him to be, and he knows it in his heart and in his head. He knows that he's outside of the will of God. And thus, what we find in Jacob's life at this season is that though he belongs to God and though deep down he loves God, spiritually, he's just going through the motions. He has checked out in a sense and he's coasting. Maybe he feels that he needs a rest and that he just needs a season to lay low and he'll get back on board at some point in the future. The problem with that is that Jacob finds himself in that position in a place where he is not growing. He's not going forward in the things of God. He's not growing closer to God, but he's withdrawn from God. Now, you cannot with God just stay still. You are either advancing and growing or you are backsliding and pulling further away. And thus what we see in Jacob in this time where he has checked out of the will of God is that his heart is growing cold, it's becoming harder, and he's becoming less of a spiritual person. And it's not just affecting him, but as we read in our chapter, it's spilling over and it's also affecting the members of his family. Now Jesus, 
When he was on the earth and he was demonstrating to us what it meant to know God and walk with God and show us who God was. On two occasions, he said, when you pray, say, and then he gave what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is not a verbatim thing that we're to ritualistically speak back to God, but rather it's a pattern. It says, after this manner ought you to pray. And one of the key and pivotal things that Jesus taught us that when we pray is that we're to say, thy will be done. That is that part of our prayer or the contingency of our prayer being answered is that we are surrendered and submitted to God's will for our life. And so we're to pray, thy will be done. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't make it just this generic thing. But he says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And thus what Jesus was revealing to us is that there is to be a harmony between that which God ordains and orders in heaven and that which then is produced and unfolds on earth. There's to be a harmony between the two. And thus in order for our lives to be in harmony on earth with God and with heaven, it's essential that we be in the will of God, not just in parts of our life, but in every part of our life. And it works kind of like an orchestra. If you've ever been somewhere where there's a symphony that's playing or an orchestra that's performing, you'll notice that there are several instruments, several sections. There's the woodwinds and the brass. There's the strings. There's the percussion. And all of it being led by a conductor who's keeping everything in sync and giving everyone their cues. Well, that orchestra sounds very pleasing when every part is working together and when every instrument is in tune. But if one part, even one person in that vast orchestra is playing an instrument that is slipped or that's damaged in some way, or someone isn't following the cue of the conductor, not only are they completely in left field, but they ruin the entirety of the symphony. And thus, for you and I to be in the will of God is so essential in every part of our life because it's how we're in harmony with him and it's how we're in harmony with his plan and how we bear fruit that lasts for the things of eternity. It's so important to be in the will of God, each one of us and in every part. Now, sometimes the will of God for our lives doesn't make sense. We don't know why in the will of God things are a certain way. Why, God, am I still single? It, it, it is the reality, and thus I accept it as your will for this season, but it doesn't make sense to me. I don't like it, and I don't want it. And sometimes we don't know. But the fact that it is makes it, at least for this season, his will for your life. Conversely, other people might say, God, why is it your will that I'm married this marriage is killing me, God. And I didn't realize it would be so difficult or so oppressive or that it would be something so other than what it was sold to me to be at the very beginning. But yet you're in that place. It's the will of God. And thus it's essential that you stay in the will of God. You may be in a position, a career or a place in life, a mother or something where you're saying, this isn't what I necessarily would choose or what I would want but somewhere you know it's the will of God, it's important that you stay in that position in that area of your life because it lends itself to the harmony of everything else that God wills and that God is doing in you, for you, and ultimately through you. And thus the will of God is so important that we be in it. And when we step out of the will of God, 
there will be unintended consequences that will snowball, that will grow, and that ultimately will lead to an explosion of problems, much like we see in the man Jacob in the text that we have tonight. So what are some of the unintended consequences that Jacob experiences in his choice to step outside of the will of God and to live there. Well, what we see, first of all, is that the geographic misalignment, that is not being where he's supposed to be, spills over into a neglect or a misalignment of just fulfilling simple family responsibilities. Jacob left his family exposed and uncovered from the influence of the culture that he had placed himself too close to. We touched upon it last week, how Dinah, who came to an age where seeing that it was all brothers, all boys and no girls, perhaps she desired friends. She saw that in Jacob's company and in his household, there wasn't much hope of a spouse, of ever meeting someone that she would know. And thus becoming curious and living in that culture, she went out to see the daughters of the land. Now, she had no business going out to see the daughters of the land. And even if we give Jacob and Leah and the rest the benefit of the doubt that things were crazy, there was 11 or 12 other kids, boys that were were crazy, a huge amount of people to be responsible for, and they just lost track of her. Nevertheless, Jacob was to be the covering for Dinah, and he was grossly negligent in allowing her to be exposed to Shechem in its culture and in its people and its influence in the way that he did. We see in the text this young man Shechem who took a liking to Dinah. We're told over the course of the passage four things about this young man. We're told first of all concerning Shechem that he was the prince of the Hivites. Secondly, we're told that he was a man who was used to getting what he wants. He said to his dad, get me this damsel to wife. And he knew how to get things that he wanted by whatever means were necessary. We see also that he was influential, that he was able to move all of the other men in the society to do something that would be exceedingly uncomfortable to them in order to produce the outcome that he wanted. He was a man of influence. And strangely enough, we're actually told in the text that he was, of all things, honorable. That he was more honorable than all of the others of those that lived within that city. What an amazing picture of this young man who was the influence that ultimately defiled this young woman, Dinah. About a hundred years before this episode that we read before us tonight, God came to Abraham with a promise. He said, to you and to your descendants, I am giving this land. And in the course and order of giving that promise to Abraham, God said that he would use the descendants of Abraham as an instrument of judgment to remove the Canaanites that were then rooted in that place. But God, when he spoke to Abraham, said that they won't be removed for 400 years. And the reason why God was giving them 400 years, he tells Abraham, is because their sin or their iniquity was not yet full. Meaning that God was letting things play out, giving them space to turn away from their sins, but there would ultimately come a point where their sin would be so great where spiritually they would be so opposed to the person of God that God would 
remove from them their possession of the land and he would give it to someone else. Not because of their race or their personality, but because of their resistance spiritually to who he was and to his ways. Now, when we read this text and when we read what happened in the future, what we understand is that the chief driver of the sin of the Canaanites, which included the Hivites, of whom Shechem is prince, was sexual sin. Leviticus chapter 18 highlights the things that they were doing in the land. There was rampant adultery, rampant fornication, rampant homosexuality, rampant bestiality, rampant incest amongst these people. And that's what God says was the thing that was a stench in his nostrils that ultimately caused the land to vomit out the people. And God actually warned Israel saying, listen, don't be high-minded because if you give yourselves to these things, I'm taking the land from you too, which ultimately he did twice when they fell into the same similar sins. And so what we see in our text here is we see a slightly less mature version of the sin that ultimately caused these people to be dispossessed of the land and Jacob is allowing his family to be influenced by and exposed to the sin of the Canaanites. It's something that Jacob had absolutely no business doing at all, letting his daughter, Dinah, be in this situation. Well, she goes in and Shechem, the son, is taken by Dinah. There's something about her that's different from all of the other women in the land of whom he could have his choice. Probably he saw in her an innocence that didn't exist in the Canaanite women, an innocence that was born of purity, and he was drawn to it, and he decided that he wanted it. And so he approached her, he spoke to her, and whether he seduced her, and whether it started as just a casual conversation that escalated into more, and then ultimately he forces himself on her, or it happened in some other way, we don't know the exact details, but ultimately we're told that he takes her and that he rapes her. Now, the amazing thing is that it tells us after the fact of this rape that took place, it says that he actually loved her. It tells us that in verse 3. It says that he loved the damsel. Now, he didn't love the damsel. Don't be confused by that. The word love that's used is the same word that was used when it says that Amnon loved Tamar. Remember David's son that raped his half-sister, David's daughter, Tamar, later on in Israel's future, you know? That wasn't love, and this isn't love. This is lust that's driven by selfish passion or selfish desire. You know how we know that? Because the Bible defines love in several places. And the Bible says of true love in Romans chapter 13, verse 10, that love works no harm to its neighbor. That love doesn't harm people. That's not a characteristic of what love does. But we see that this man, Shechem, who claims to have loved Dinah, that he would harm her, that he would defile her. It tells us six times in the passage that he defiled her. In verse 2, it says that she was defiled. In verse 5, again, it says that she was defiled. In verse 7, it says that he had wrought folly, which means that he had done disgrace to her. In verse 13, again, it says that he defiled her. In verse 27, it says that he defiled her. And then again, finally, in verse 31, when Jacob's sons are rebuking Jacob 
for being so selfish in the middle of all this thing. It says, why would you be so apathetic about the fact that he's treating our daughter like a prostitute? And he actually uses that word that he treated her like a prostitute. And even just the thought that this kind of a relationship, a man treating a woman like she's an object of gratifying lust, or a man treating a woman like she's a prostitute, that this could ever be equated with love in a biblical context is an abomination. To take the highest expression of human intimacy that was created by God and given to man and then make it a commodity that can be traded for a price is the most devaluing thing that could ever be done to a human being. And to call it love is to miss the mark by a mile. It is extremely devaluing. This is not love. This is exploitation and lust. It is relational imperialism. And Jacob did not take the protective measures necessary to keep Dinah insulated from this environment. Why is Jacob even in Shechem? We don't know. But why is he allowing Dinah to be there? He is her covering. And listen, parents, especially dads, We are called by God. We've been given an entrustment to be the covering for our children. We are to know, we're to be involved in the things that they're doing. What are they watching? What are they listening to? What are they being influenced by? What are they learning in their schools and places of education? What are they viewing on the computer, on their Facebook, their Instagram, their Snapchat, their social media outlets? Who are their friends? What do their friends believe? What kind of homes are they from? What kind of influences are influencing the worldviews and personalities of our kids? Dads, we have a call from God not to micromanage those things, but we ought to be involved in those things because we are the covering that God has made for our children. And Jacob stopped doing this. He neglected to not only oversee, but also to infuse values and truth into his kids. Remember back in Genesis chapter 18, the life of Abraham? Remember when God came and physically visited Abraham with two angels? And Abraham made them a meal? And and just before God was going to leave, he looked at the two angels. God looked at two angels and he said, shall we not tell Abraham the thing that we're about to do? And he gave the reason why. He said, because will he not surely teach his children to walk in my ways and obey my commandments? God knew that Abraham was one that would be a covering for his future generations, that he would teach them the ways of God. And thus it delighted God to reveal to Abraham even more than what he already had. We see that Jacob has no value in doing that at all. We see Dinah in this environment. We see that even Jacob with his sons, that they had adopted the very culture that they had been exposed to. Look at their behavior throughout the chapter. It's amazing. It's remarkable. They respond with anger, which is probably a good thing. It's probably the highlight of the chapter. At least somebody was angry about the thing that happened. But what they did with that anger is completely misdirected. They didn't at all even think to bring that anger to God and say, God, what would you have us to do? You're the one that's preserved and protected us thus far. But rather they allow that anger to lead them into deception, just to chip off the old block, right? Just like their father. 
And then they use that deception as an excuse and a platform to become mass murderers. And they went way beyond what was just or necessary. I mean, to take the life of Shechem, maybe that's reasonable. He was the law. They couldn't go to the law. But to go beyond and to kill the father, Hamor, and then to slay all the men in the city, this is cold-blooded murder. And then for the other 10 to not say, whoa, you guys are bold, but to say, yeah, and then go in and spoil the city, take everything, the women, the possessions, the wealth in the city and in the field. You say, what in the world would influence them to do that? Well, listen, isn't that maybe exactly what Jacob is at this point? I mean, what's motivating him to be in Shechem? Why is he there? Well, life's a little bit easier in Shechem. There's not much going on down in Bethel. But here in Shechem, there's a little bit more of an economy. It's a little bit more established. Life is a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier to make money. If I live in Shechem, I can have, you know, that, that Ford F-350 that I've so wanted. In, in, in Shechem, we can have jet skis. In Shechem, there's stability. In Shechem, there's income. There's opportunity. It's good in Shechem. I, I don't know if there's a Bible teaching church here. I, I don't know about the strength of, you know, the youth ministry or if there's Christian friends for my, my kids. I don't know about the, edu- I know the SAT scores are good. You know, there's some, some good and you kind of outweigh, you take the good with the bad. But listen, what was Jacob doing? He was making the things of this world his priority. And thus that was then the influence along with the society he was in that shaped the character of the sons of Jacob. And they are at the critical age when who they will become as adults is being sown into their hearts. And Jacob has completely missed the mark. The fragrance of life, writes one writer, is the consequence of what one is soaking in. I love that quote. The fragrance of a life is the consequence of what one is soaking in. It's the principle of marination. We take something that is plain or bland in and of itself, and we immerse it and soak it in something that has flavor for the sake of it absorbing and taking on the essence, aroma, and flavor of the setting that it's in. And the truth about a human being is that we become a byproduct of the influence that we place ourselves under. And so I ask dads, I ask us, what is the influence? What is the flavor? What is the aroma of the environment that we're creating in our homes and in our sphere that we ourselves and our kids are growing up in? What if we were to take each one of us and we were to put a counter, a time counter, on the things that we give ourselves to throughout the course of a day? Well, I spent three hours watching television, two hours on the internet, 14 hours on Facebook, you know, and, and we just went through 15 minutes in the Word, 10 minutes in prayer, and we were to go through and, and we were to just kind of look at the things that were an influence over us over the course of a day. What would that look like if at the end of every day we looked at it? Well, that influence is going to shape who we are and the aroma of those things is going to come out of our lives and it's going to look like something to us and to the people that are around us. And I wonder why sometimes... We don't smell so much like Christ or carry with us the aroma of eternity when we're not giving ourselves to the things of him. Jacob had stopped 
adhering to his responsibility as the head and spiritual leader of his household to see to it that the influence that he himself and that his children were subjected to was that of the Lord, but rather it was of the world. We see that Jacob had checked out completely from being the leader of his home at this point. Notice in verse 5 that when he hears word that Dinah had been defiled, that he does nothing about it. It says that he held his peace. Really? You just heard that your daughter was raped and you're not going to say anything or do anything? I mean, he has completely at this point checked out of his familial parental responsibilities. Let me ask you here, dad, if you had word come to you today that your daughter was raped, would you not know what to do? I think I might know what to do. I'm a passive person by nature. But if something like that happened to my daughters, I ain't sitting around. Second of all, he waits for his sons to come home to get counsel from his kids what he should do about the rape of his daughter. I mean, he's not in a good place as a dad in this thing. I do not need to ask my son Rocky and my boys Riley and Noah how I should handle it if something were to happen to one of my daughters. No, as a dad, I'm to know that and I'm not to check out of my responsibilities when things go awry because of how difficult it might be, what we see Jacob doing, just that. We see Jacob has become an extremely self-consumed man. Look at the last verse of the passage, or last two verses of the passage, chapter uh, 34, verse 30. After all of this goes down and his sons kill everyone in Shechem, he said to Simeon and Levi, listen, he said, you have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I... Being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I will be destroyed, I and my house. You hear that? That's a bad case of what we call the I, me, mys. I mean, he can't see through anything except he's enclosed in this prison of what he himself wants at this time. Amazing where it started. Oh God, I'm just a little bit outside of your will. But the unintended unintended consequences can be far-reaching. Listen, it doesn't just happen in his family, but it also happens in society around him. Did you pick up in the passage that at this point in Jacob's spiritual walk, that he has absolutely no distinction from the men of Shechem? Did you see in verse 6 where it says that the men of Shechem approached Jacob and made a proposition? Listen, rather than Jacob going and dealing with a crime, the men of Shechem proactively come to Jacob and they say, hey, listen, we see, we observe, we've been around, and what we see in looking at you guys is that there's really no difference between us and you. So why don't we just blend ourselves? Why don't we make an alliance, an allegiance, and you guys can take our daughters to your sons, we'll give you our sons to your daughters and we'll make marriages and we'll blend everything and we'll all just be one. Hey, there's really no difference between us and you anyways, so we might as well just merge. Do you realize what a reproach that is for the world to look at the people of God and say, we want to join you because we don't see any difference between us and you. That's a big deal. That's a big problem that's going on. Listen, We can't just continue as we are before we get saved, after we get saved. There's to be a change in our lives when we come to Christ. 
Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth. He said that we're the light of the world. There's to be a distinction, a flavor, something that comes out of us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said that we are the aroma of Jesus Christ in the world. And to those that are perishing, we're the aroma of death. They should hate us. But to those who are being saved, we're the aroma of life. Is that we're to smell like something spiritually. There's to be a distinction between us and the world. In 2 Peter chapter 2, when Peter was writing about false teachers, he said that there was a whole group of false teachers that were teaching that it's okay, essentially, for you to go on and continue living in sin even after you've come to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And Peter's conclusion towards those that believe that teaching is that it would be better for them to have never have said they were saved in the first place than to make a profession, but then there's never a change. There's never a distinction. No. When we're the people of God, there's a change in our life. The Spirit of God comes in and affects change. The things that we used to desire and love in the world, we now abhor and hate. To go our own way, we realize is destructive and misleading, but to submit and surrender to God's will is where we're going to find life and purpose and meaning. And thus there's to be a distinction, but Jacob had grown so cold at this point that there's absolutely no difference in his life at all. And notice that he is willing to reduce a relationship with the will of God, or I'm sorry, with the living God to nothing more than the ritual of circumcision. Now, granted, his sons said it and they were purposefully being deceptive. When they said, hey, listen, all you got to do is be circumcised and you can be as we are. But Jacob sat by and let them say it and didn't intervene, not knowing that they were being purposefully deceptive. Meaning that Jacob was willing to let circumcision be nothing more than just a little ritual that would bring everybody in. It would be the kind of thing where, listen, all you got to do is just pray this prayer. That's it. Just pray this prayer and you'll be saved. Just come forward at the crusade and and you'll be saved. No, 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 no. It's not a ritual. It's not religion. It's not joining a church. It's not a sacrament that we pass into. We're coming into a relationship with the living God. We're being born again. We're dying to the old man. We're saying, nail my life and my old man up upon the cross. And to reduce that, what Jesus paid for in his blood, and to make it nothing more than a ritual is blasphemous. Do you realize what Abraham went through in order to receive the promise and the covenants? And now Jacob's heart so cold, so cold that he's willing to just, all right, hey, you guys want to get circumcised and call yourselves among us? Fine. It's all good. Not good. God's not okay with this. The future's not okay with this. What's amazing to me in this is that Jacob is in a place so cold that he is willing to dissolve in one contract the birthright that he had cared about so much previously. Remember the birthright? Hey, sell me your birthright, Esau. What good is it to me? I'm going to die if I don't eat food. Oh, yes, Lord. I'm going to be the heir of Abraham. It's going to be me that you're going to use to bring the Messiah into the world in the future. The elaborate plan with Rebekah to deceive Isaac into conveying the blessing upon him. He worked so hard. 
It cost him 20 years up in Padan Aram working under Laban in order to have this promise. He wrestled with God all night and he said, I won't let you go until you bless me. He wanted the birthright. And now in one moment of carnality and cold-heartedness, he's willing to trade all of it away to not deal with something difficult that's happened in his life. He's going to blend cultures with the society that God is looking to destroy and thus ruin the, the line that God wants to bring the Messiah into the world through. This is amazing. What a heart check for Jacob. Think about the cost of what went into preserving what he's messing with right now. I mean, Abraham sent the servant 500 miles to get Rebecca so that Isaac wouldn't marry a Hivite. Jacob was sent up to Paddan Aram to find a wife from the daughters of Laban so that he wouldn't marry a Canaanite. And now Jacob's just going to say, yeah, marry the Canaanites. Good. I'm good with that. That's cool. That's fine. No, no, no. It's not good. This is not a good place that you're in. Jacob has fallen far from the place that he's supposed to be. He's outside of the will of God. And God is only going to let one of his own wander so far outside of his will before he allows something to happen that's going to wake that someone up and bring them back to the place that they're supposed to be. And that's exactly what happens to Jacob. Dinah is raped. Now just think about it for just a moment. Yes, Jacob had a fault in it. He was to be her covering. Yes, Dinah subjected herself to the situation that she was in. Yes, she was accosted by a godless human being who's called honorable for some reason. The most honorable man is a rapist, you know, in their society. Yes, all of that's true. But at the end of the day, it is God who let it happen. God let it happen. He didn't do it, but God let it happen. And all of the things that happened as a byproduct of it, God allowed those things to happen in Jacob and in his family. And so we recognize and we look at all of this and we see where it started. Where did it start? It started with Jacob and his choice to step outside of the will of God for whatever reason in one area of his life. But there is not just one area of your life. Because one instrument ruins the whole symphony. One section out of sync destroys the entire song and the whole thing turns sideways. The unintended consequences of Jacob's desire to make things a little bit easier spilled over into every other part of his life and it made things an absolutely huge mess. And so I ask us tonight as we consider what happened in Jacob's family, and as we allow God now to look and examine our lives under the lens of this truth, I ask the question, are you in the perfect will of God for your life tonight? Geographically, are you where God wants you to be? Or are the decisions concerning where you are and what you're doing based on something else? The ease of it, the convenience of it, the fiduciary potential of it, all of those other things, the advantages that come with it. Is that why or are you where you are geographically because it's where the will of God has you? What about spiritually? 
Are you in the will of God spiritually? Is your heart on fire for him? Are you in tune with him? Are you desiring what he wants for your life? Or in some way like Jacob, have you checked out and said, God, to be in your will is too hard of a path to follow. It's too uneasy for me to not know what's going to happen next. And so for a while, God, I'm just going to navigate things on my own. And spiritually, I'm going to stand aside from you. Are you mentally in the will of God, your thought process, what it is that you're allowing to be an influence in your life, the things that are going in through the eye gate and through the ear gate and the mind gate and the influence and the thinking and the education. Mentally, are you in the will of God where you're saying, God, I want to be the kind of person that you want me to be. I want the aroma of my life to be what you want it to be. And I want that to be what I'm marinating in. I want you to be what I'm marinating in. Are you mentally in the will of God tonight? And are you behaviorally in the will of God tonight? Are there areas of our lives that we have justifiably compromised and said, God, I will go this far in obedience to your commands, but there is this or this or this and this that, God, you know that I'm going to continue to not walk in your will. Are we in the will of God for it, for our lives? Here's the truth, is that God will only allow Sin, rebellion, discordance to go so far before he steps in and before he does something that's going to wake us up and bring us back because he loves us too much to let us go and continue going to the point where we ruin his plan. And thus, if we compromise and say, I want what I want and God, I'll get back in your will sometime in the future, I strongly caution that you re-examine your thoughts concerning that because at some point discipline is going to come into your life god is going to allow something to happen and it will get your attention there are times we see in the bible where maybe even god will allow something that you go home early that's it ecclesiastes i think it's chapter 7 verse 17 or somewhere there around It says, for be not overmuch wicked, for why will you die before your time? And God gives a warning there concerning when we just say, God, I don't want your will. I'm going to go my own way. There are times for our own good or for the good of what we're affecting through our sin. God might say, this far and no further. And thus it's essential, it's important for you and I as Christians, as God's people, To say, God, thy will be done in my life, in every area of my life on earth as it is in heaven. Well, you ask the question and you say, okay, well, how do I know if I'm in God's will? Or how do I get in God's will if I want to? Jesus said this in John chapter 7, verse 17. It's an amazing truth. He said that if any man will do his will, meaning that your will, what you want, is to do God's will. If that's the motive and the intention of his heart, Jesus said it's very simple. He said that he will know the teaching. That's what he said. If you want to do his will, then you'll know the teaching, that it's from God. In other words, it's real easy for God to confirm it to you that you're in his will and in his path if the true desire of your heart is to want to be in his will. So the question becomes, do I want to be in God's will? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I echo the words of the great Apostle Paul. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Listen to the magnitude of that. That God accepts you when you come to him as a living sacrifice and he calls you holy. He says you're acceptable. Paul says that this is your reasonable service. And then he adds this attachment. He says, and be not conformed to this world. That means remove yourself from the influence of this world's desires and flavors. And rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, if you want to be in the will of God, then come to God in absolute surrender and say, God, I want my life to be everything that you want it to be in every area of it. I'm giving myself completely to you. And my part in it, God, is that I'm willing to remove myself from the influence and marination of this world and rather to have my mind transformed by the infusion and influence of your truth. And in the process of it, God promises that you'll be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So it starts with surrender and willingness. It moves into seeking and devotion. And then in the daily of life, Paul gives us great insight in Colossians chapter 3. How do I know if I'm moving and operating in the will of God in the daily decisions that I make? Listen to this small passage from Colossians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul gives us insight. He says in verse 15, he says, first of all, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you are called in one body and be thankful. God has given to you and I what Jesus called God's peace. Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. So he gives us a peace. And you guys, if you're in Christ tonight, you know that peace. It's a peace that passes understanding. It's a peace that doesn't make sense, even though circumstances say I shouldn't be peaceful. There's a peace that resides in our lives. And what the Bible is promising here is that God will use that very peace as an instrument of leading his will. So what that means is that as I'm approaching a decision or making a decision or going a direction, if it's not something that God wants for my life, then what he does is he removes that peace. And all of a sudden I feel this anxiety. I feel this, this rising up inside. I don't, think, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I, uh, something is wrong. Something, there's a check engine light on this one and I'm not sure if, I, if I'm where I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be. I don't know what's going on on things. When that happens, that's God saying, slow down. And seek me. Slow down and wait. If you violate your peace, you're in danger of stepping outside of the will of God. So he's given us his peace on a daily basis. He goes on to say in verse 15 or 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. God's given us his word. And as we become influenced by the word and transformed by its truth, we become wise to make decisions according to what God thinks. And thus the word of God living in us and becoming the network through which we see life and makes decisions helps us to stay in the will of God. And then thirdly, he says in verse 17, that whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. This thing in my life, this decision I'm making, 
this desire that I have, this passion that has distracted me, can I keep it? Can I live it? Can I do it in his name and still be right with God in that? It's a great question to ask concerning the little things in our life. God, are you okay with this? And then take it to the word and take it to prayer and see if you can even find yourself uttering the words. God, is it okay with you if I continue flirting with this person in my workplace? Can I do that to your glory, God? Can you even pray those words? God, are you okay with me self-medicating in this way? God, is this okay with you? Can you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus? Listen, church, I share these things with you tonight. And God lays this passage out before us, this tragic chapter in Jacob's life, because the will of God matters. On earth as it is in heaven means something. And if the position of your life tonight is in any way saying, well, in this area, God, I'm going to go this way and the consequences be what they are, I would strongly caution you to reconsider that decision and that position. Because I promise you, like Jacob, you will come to regret it. And I would hate for any of us here to continue in a path that we're in right now and come to a place where news comes to us that something has happened to one of our daughters or what our sons have committed and done. And we feel too guilty because we know somewhere deep down inside that we are not where we should be, we're not doing what we should be doing, that ultimately it's my fault as it was Jacob's fault. And it's as simple as saying, God, I'm sorry God, I repent. God, I believe. And I want your will to be done and not my own. And I want to come back to the altar of living sacrifice and lay my life down there again. And I want to infuse the truth of your word and make that the primary influence in my heart and in my home. And I want to take my responsibility as a father or a mother or a grandparent and I want to infuse that truth into those whom you've entrusted to me and be the covering that you've made me. And I want to be ruled by your peace and immersed in your word and led by its wisdom. And I want to live for your glory. And someday I want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, knowing that my life was lived in harmony with God and with heaven and with your plan. This is a dismal chapter, but God uses it to get Jacob's attention. And he's going to do a 180 in chapter 35, and things will be set right. And what I implore you tonight, beseech you tonight, is don't let it come to a chapter 34 in your own experience. Don't let it come to the point where God has to allow ugly in order to wake you up and to bring you back. It will happen, but it doesn't have to. This is the hard way. We know the easy way. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this chapter, for its truth. We thank you, Lord, for the things that you've spoken to us by it. And Lord, we recognize tonight that we're in she- we are sheep and that we're in great need of a shepherd. And we thank you that we have a faithful eye that's watching over us. And tonight, Lord, we want to put before you every part of our lives, our personal lives, our relationship with you, the status of it where we are geographically, spiritually, mentally, 
emotionally, behaviorally. We want to put before you our roles as fathers, as mothers, as children, as students, as employees, as business people, as ministry leaders, as church members, as friends and companions. And Lord, we're asking tonight that in every part and in every way we would be brought into the very center of your will for us. In every situation and circumstance that we're troubled by and that we find ourselves in, oh Lord, we ask that you would be God. And Father, we want to bring ourselves to that altar and that place of total trust, total submission, total surrender, that we might be completely about your business and live for your glory. So Lord, what adjustments, what changes, what circumcision can take place in our own hearts here as we're before you tonight. We ask that as we sing this last song, as we sit in your presence and take in and think about the things that we've heard, we ask, Lord, that you would do great business in us. And I pray finally, Lord, for anyone that might be here tonight that doesn't yet know you personally. And for whatever reason, they came here tonight and they heard this. But Lord, if in some way you might use it to show, Lord, your goodness, to show that your kindness and will for us is good, that you don't willingly afflict, that you've made provision for us to walk in safety, that you are our great covering. I pray for any that don't know you that tonight your conviction would draw them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, take these words, take this truth, take our lives, blend them together, and bring beauty, Lord. Let Calvary Chapel of the Hudson Valley stand in the power of your might. Let us walk in your will, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.